Good morning, church. I need you to open your Bibles to 1 Peter 1 and 1 Peter chapter 3. So if you want to get those Bibles open and ready for that, uh, we'll be looking at a brief passage in chapter 1, and then we'll be jumping ahead to chapter 3, where we left off last week. Uh, if you are visiting, my name is Mark. I'm one of the ministers here at Christ Church, and we're glad that you've joined us. We're in this series through the letter, which we call 1 Peter. It's the first letter that we received from him as churches, and it was written to churches in a time and a day where standing up for Jesus could cost you your life. The persecution that they faced and the ordeals that they were going through uh, created a, a dilemma, and Peter would write this letter to these followers, encouraging them to remember what they had in Christ, see the opportunities that they had, and he taught us how to respond to it. So what I'd like to do is catch us up uh, for those of you who've been traveling in and out this summer, to catch up where we've been so you understand the intent of today's message. Uh, Peter begins by identifying who we are in Christ. He calls us born again. And he shares with us the reality of what we have received uh, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that we have hope. And we've defined hope not as wishful thinking, but confident expectation. It's not just, well, I'm hoping, the way we use it in today's world, that Jesus will be enough when this all comes apart. No, it's a confident expectation that he is. You can either anticipate who Jesus is, or you can live in the reality of who he is. And hope is that reality. Then he tells us, Peter tells us, that we are called to be holy, which is a word that means to be set apart. It's not just uh, that we are perfect. As uh, Chad Ragsdale talked about a couple weeks ago when he preached on this message, he said many times we, we use holy as almost a, a beatdown. Well, you're holier than me, as if someone's just better than us. And that's not what it means. The word holy means to be set apart, to be designated for something else. I'm told in our house we have China. I have yet to see it, but one day if we ever have a fancy meal, I expect it to show up. That would be a sign of holiness, something that's not just regularly used, but used specifically for an intentional purpose. And then he tells us that we're priests. And that term would have meant so much more to their culture than ours. That as a priest, we are to administer the mercy of God to people. So that's who we are. We've been born again by the resurrection. We're called to holiness and we're called to be agents of mercy and grace in the world we live in. And then he proceeds to tell us about opportunities we have in front of us. But for these opportunities to matter, we need to notice this. If what Peter tells us about ourselves is true, then it's not about you and me. It's about him. Where do we derive our new birth? Jesus. Where do we gain our holiness? Jesus. Why are we able to minister mercy? Because of Jesus. So the opportunities are opportunities we take on his behalf. Uh, He tells us that we are strangers and aliens. This is an important piece that we need to embed in our minds, that what Peter's telling us is, if we truly place our hope in Jesus Christ, we're not going to fit in the world much anymore. We're going to be different. Now, sometimes our culture will look at that difference and applaud it. And other times they'll look at that difference and persecute it. So he's telling us, this is going to be a challenge. And you no longer fit in like you used to. You're not pursuing the same God's and the same resources that they are. And Jesus said, they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. They tried to kill me, and they'll try to do the same to you. So he's warned us about what comes our way with the opportunities we face. So no longer is it not just about me, but it's about Jesus. What we've learned is it's not just about us, it's about them. 
that we, are, we have been left here, and part of our holiness is to live out a purpose that benefits the world in which we live and not just ourselves. We can't turn Christianity into our own personal insurance claim. It has to be something that's far deeper, more vast. So then Peter broke in, beginning in chapter 2, he broke into the section on words of wisdom for the circumstances we face. And, and so I want to call it out, say, how do we live this thing out? I want to designate this truth. Peter calls us to be a kind of people. He doesn't call us to do a list of things. And even though there are many lists of encouragement in the scriptures, we are called to become something, not just to do something. And in the American church, if I may, we need to break out of assessing our Christianity by how well we did in the last 24 hours. If your Christianity is measured on that you did more of the do's than you did of the don'ts, then I'm okay. You've misunderstood Christianity. We're called to be set apart and to be different. We can't be perfect, not as long as we're in this broken flesh, but we can live to become people of faith, people of purpose, people of value. Listen to 1 Peter 1 verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to notice who's doing the work. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. My identity, as defined by Peter in verse 3, has nothing to do with me and has everything to do with the faithfulness and stability of Jesus. It's the rock of, of my foundation is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if you read the echoes of that in Isaiah 26... The prophet says, you will keep in perfect peace him whose mind is steadfast because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever for the Lord. The Lord is the rock eternal. Does this remind you of the passage where Peter says that Jesus is the cornerstone? You know, right, that any building that we would ever build, the foundation is the strength of it. The foundation is built and established to sustain all of the weight and all of the span of what you're building. And a weak foundation means that no matter how ornate and beautiful and intentional the upper building is, if the foundation is flawed, it does not stand a chance of surviving shifting ground, weather, and everything else that could come its way. So when Peter says Jesus is the cornerstone, he said that all of this church we talk about today, that his church is built on Jesus. Any part of the church that's not established on the foundation of Jesus, or if it becomes self-help or making people feel better about themselves, it will crumble when it takes any weight or any stress at all. Remember, Peter's writing to a group of people under great stress. So he's encouraging us to remember that if we build on the hope of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there's nothing that we can do to the church that will bring it down. If we don't build on the foundation of Jesus Christ and the hope inherent in him, then it will come crashing down. And look at the church over the last 2,000 years. We have messed up everything, and yet it still frees people to new life. Why? Because as long as Jesus Christ is the foundation, the church will accomplish its purpose, even when he lets people like me have a voice in it. And so what we're learning here is that we know who we are, and we know why we're here, and we know that it's going to be difficult So how should we live? He told us as citizens how to live. He told us as servants how to live. Last week he told us as husbands and wives how to live. And it falls to just a few key concepts he reiterates over and over and over. In chapter 2, verse 13, he tells us to submit ourselves. 
Now, last week, we talked about wives submitting to their husbands, and surprisingly, I got no emails, no phone call. I've been ignored, and I'm used to that. That's okay. It's probably better than being yelled at. But do you understand the word submission is not just for women in Scripture? It's for everyone. How do you submit to the authorities over you in the government? How do you submit to the authorities over you in your workplace? How do you submit to the authority of the home? How do you live your life saying no to yourself so you can do what's best for others? And then Jesus give, or Peter gives us the rationale that Jesus gave him. Why would we submit to anything? Found in verse 13, for the Lord's sake. Because when we're born again, it means the old man died. I no longer live my life for what I get out of it. I live my life for what I can offer because of what I've already received. And so that's why I'm talking today about the church. And as I joked with you earlier, it's really hard to talk to a group of people who decided to come to church about why they ought to be in the church. But please remember, in the American church, it doesn't always look like the church of the Bible. Uh, Several weeks ago, before I went on vacation, I received an email from someone. It was a very friendly email. Uh, And it was in part of the conversation, this lady said to me, you seem really to be down on America. And I need to clarify something here this morning. I am not down on America. I am down on Americans. And I think there's a distinction there that needs to be made. I love my country. I love the freedom we get in this country. I love the beauty of it. I love the resources that God blesses us so that the church can use those and bless others. But I have a problem with what Americans have done, including myself, to the church. We've made it a group of people that we use and not a movement of God that uses us. It's independence. I do it my way. I'll call the church when I need help. And, and I need to, to know, you already know this, but let's say it openly and honestly. That's not the Lord's church. The Lord's church is where God gets what God wants. And what God wants most from every one of us is our entire lives. And in those lives, he'll make us useful. So when we talk about the church, I'm talking about what God wants to do through us and the opportunities he gives us. And today's challenge from Peter, combined with next week's, is hard. It's a hard teaching, but it's really what the church has been called to be. So let's take a peek. Chapter 3. Let's look at the binding holiness that we're called to be a part of. Remember, if holiness is to be set apart, then God is going to bring all of us set apart together for something amazing. And when I talk about the church, I'm not talking about the organization. I'm talking about the lives of people that are building on Jesus Christ for the future. 1 Peter 3.8. Finally, all of you... Now notice there that he's designating that he's about to stop talking about our conditions. And he's going to go to something else. But, it, but he's speaking to all of us, not individually. He's not saying you. He's saying together. This is what we're called to be together. Where we don't use the church, but we are useful to his church. Finally, all of you, live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic. Love his brothers. Be compassionate and humble. These are commands. These are the things we are to do because of who we are in Christ. So let's begin with the first, live in harmony. Some of your translations say to be like-minded. Now the scriptures are clear on what we are to agree on. Unfortunately, if I may, and I don't want to beat up the church because it's a beautiful organization that has outlived the men who have tried to ruin it. But the truth is, when we look at Harmony, the problem with the church today seems to be the things we want to get in agreement over. Or let me just state it more bluntly, the things we fight about. Styles, dates, times, people, personalities. 
ideas. I, I like to say it simply because I like food. Uh, we're arguing over the salt and pepper instead of eating the steak. And I can, to be honest with you, I've tried it multiple ways. I can eat a steak without salt and pepper, and I can eat a steak with salt and pepper. And it's still steak. And can I have an amen if that's not awesome? And the church has stopped worrying about the steak, and we start fighting over the salt and pepper. Styles of music. What time to meet? Should there be a table? Should there not be a table? Should the preacher wear jeans or should he wear a suit? And we're arguing about salt and pepper. And Peter says, no, listen, when your life's on the line, it's not going to matter if the preacher wore jeans or not. What's going to matter is, was Jesus Christ lifted up and was the church built on the foundation of who he is? So when it says to be in harmony, it means on the things that matter. One faith, one Lord, one hope, one baptism, one God, the Father of, of all, in and over all. That's what the church is called to be in like. And if we get those things together, there's a power in the church that's found nowhere else. When we would give our lives for Jesus who gave his lives for us, his life for us, then we will understand a power of unity. And it's going on all over the world. I don't know if you, if you read your newspapers or you, you go online to see the Christian Post. You will see that throughout the world, people are gathered around one faith, one Lord, one hope, and one baptism, and one God. And people are giving their lives for this and the church is being crushed at the hands of its enemies and in its being crushed, it is blowing up and saving souls. We are to be in harmony. Philippians 2.2, Paul writes to a church, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Earlier in that letter, he says, in verse 27 of chapter 1, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I may know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. That Jesus Christ is our battle cry. Jesus Christ is our champion. You see, what we're being told here today about living in harmony is this is not an organizational effort. It's a spiritual effort. Every one of us, keeping the main thing the main thing and focusing on the most important thing. And if we get harmony right, then Peter tells us there's four things we can be doing that we are called to do by God that brings more power into the world in which we live. First is sympathy. He says we're to care for one another. In fact, the word sympathy in the Greek means to, to uh, suffer together. And we find examples of this. I'd just like to read a few of them. 1 Corinthians 12. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Romans 12, 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. I've had the privilege of uh, being a, a minister in the church for about 27, 28 years. And I've enjoyed it, except people are funny. And one of the reasons I like being a minister is I get to meet people and people are strange and funny and unique. And, and one of the reoccurring things that makes me smile all the time is I'll see someone and I'll say, hey, did you know about such and such a viewing? And they'll say, yeah, I didn't go to the viewing. I said, really? Yeah, well, why? And here's what I hear. Because I don't like funeral homes. Who does? Can I ask that question? Because if you enjoy funeral homes, you're, you're sick. You really are sick. You need to get some help. Because funeral homes remind us that people die. It's, they're places of sadness and grieving. It's hard to say goodbye to loved ones. 
And so when Christians say, well, I'm uncomfortable in those settings, death ought to make you uncomfortable. It's one of the most unnatural things we'll ever face. So I'm not trying to shame you into going to funeral homes, but I remember being in my early 20s. My grandmother died on a Sunday. My grandfather died three days later that Wednesday. We just buried grandma, came home, and my grandfather passed. And I remember standing with my three brothers and my mom and dad at a funeral home next to a box that contained one of the most influential men in my life. And I remember four of my high school friends who didn't even know my grandpa who walked in the funeral home that day to see me. They hate funeral homes. They didn't know the old man in the box, but they knew his grandsons. And because they cared about what I was going through and showed me sympathy, I realized in that moment, it's not about what I feel when someone's hurting. It's about feeling what they're feeling. It's about giving myself to them. Listen to what Paul says. When some mourn, mourn. And when they celebrate, celebrate. Because we're in this together. It's not an independence. Well, I'm sorry, your life's horrible right now. It's committing to being with them. And what I love about this church, and I mean this sincerely, is to get reports at the end of a week that someone had a tragic thing happen. They lost their job or they got really sick or they had some bills they couldn't pay. To find out that our church didn't come back and have a church meeting and say, what should we do? But people in our church just jumped in and fixed it. They showed sympathy. They cared. And so if you're sitting there saying, I want to be a part of something like that, then be a real part of the church. Because this is what we're to do. And when we do it, it's one of the most beautiful things you'll ever see. Third, unity, sympathy, love. It's really clear in the translation. It's brotherly love. Notice the family language. Notice that in family, what you want are two things. You want to be heard and you want to be understood. Uh, I think about this often. I've had both of my boys, when I've disciplined them, look at me and say, I don't like you. I understand that. I don't often like me either. And when I'm being disciplined by someone, I never like them. So it's okay for my boys to say, I don't like you or I'm mad at you. Because when we suppress a person's right to share what they're feeling and and who they are, we're really killing the soul of a person. Now, don't panic. Just because I understand someone and I understand what they're feeling doesn't mean I have to agree. But it also treats them as a human being worth listening to. Respect. Compassion. Romans 12.10 says, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Same thing Peter said. 1 Corinthians 13, when describing love, not a love I receive, but a love I give. Love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Romans 15, 7. Accept one another just as Christ accepted you. Now, I want to be clear. I read this earlier this week. Acceptance doesn't mean I approve of everything you do, but it means my love for you is not dependent on you changing. Think through that again. Accepting someone doesn't mean that I approve of what they're doing, that I have to support it, that I have to encourage it, that I have to pay for it. What it does mean is I won't love you less even though you don't change. Because my love for you is who you are, what you can be, not just what you do. And notice in the church loves well. And this is the debate in our culture today. We are so worked up on being right that we don't show the love that helps people become right. Because wasn't it the love of Christ that helped us overcome ourselves, church? 
Help me. Isn't it? The love and grace and mercy of God is what causes us to step out of the life of sin into hope. And so we have to offer the truth of Christ with the love of Christ so there can be a change to Christ. And then he tells us compassion. And compassion is a, is a parallel word or a cousin, if you will, to sympathy. Uh, it's used, this word compassion is, of these five things we're told to do, compassion is the only thing that reoccurs in other gospel writers' writings. James uses it twice, Paul uses it once. Paul uses it in Ephesians 4.32, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as Christ, uh, God forgave you. See, if sympathy is understanding a person's feelings, compassion is doing something about it. Compassion is empathy. It's not just understanding their feelings, it's responding to it. That's why Colossians, Paul wrote, clothe yourself with compassion. It's an action word. It's a choice we make to respond. And what I think is interesting about the word compassion, compassion doesn't measure why it happened. If you shoot yourself in the foot, you ought to limp. But it still hurts. And sometimes you need someone to help you learn to walk again. And so we can't always remove the consequences of a choice, but we can help people overcome choices too. 1 John 3.18, John wrote, Dear children, let us not love with words or tongues, but with actions and in truth. In other words, church, be the same church to your culture that Jesus was to you. A unity around who God is and what his plan is. Sympathy for our condition, for who we are and what we're becoming. Love unconditionally, showing compassion to each other. And then, the last thing he puts down is humility, which is a unique concept. It's the Greek word to be humble-minded. It's an inner attitude of subjection to authority. It's a difficult word. Uh, My grandfather had a basketball uh, goal on his garage and it was funny because he built the house and he was like a thousand years old. Why did he have a basketball court? Oh yeah, he had four grandsons. He wanted us to come see him. But one day my buddies and I were over there and we were playing basketball in his driveway and we were playing 21 and we were talking smack to each other and having a good time and laughing. And my grandfather came out of the garage where his wood shop was and he walked by us and I flipped him the basketball and told the old man to take a shot and he threw up a brick. It was horrible. And I said something smart aleck to him. I know that shocks most of you, but I did. And I spouted off to my grandfather, and he looked at me with a twinkle in his eye and said these words. I've not forgotten them. Those who should brag don't have to. Yikes. Game, grandpa. (laughs) I've never forgotten it. People who are really good at what they do don't have to tell people they're really good at what they do. People already know it. Humility. It's knowing who we are. If I can rephrase that whole moment, I often think that the people I meet in life that think they're all that haven't really met anybody who's all that yet. Because humility is an interesting response to our position in Christ. Uh, I'd like to be a little more practical than philosophical from this moment on. I'd like to give you a set of words that I think display the humility Peter's calling us to. The first set of words are, I need your help. Four simple words. And guys, you know who I'm talking to. I need your help. In the American culture, we don't ask for help. We're men. We'll just figure it out. How's that working? Not well for me. Most of the scars I have on my soul 
are from being independent of the church, independent of fellow believers, and basically choosing to live my life my way so none of you see through the curtain and see that there's the guy playing Oz isn't that cool. It's I need help. Galatians 6.2 says we are to bear each other's burdens. How can we do that if we're not honest with each other about who we are and what we struggle with and what's been tearing us down? That's why I love Men's Encounter. I'm absolutely a fan and a supporter of Men's Encounter because it brings a bunch of men together and when we look around, none of us is all that. But Jesus is. I need your help. The second three words that I'd like to throw at you are difficult words. I was wrong. These words are sticking my throat. Proverbs 28, 13, unsticks them. He who conceals his sin does not prosper, but whoever confesses and renounces them finds mercy. Listen to me carefully. If we lived out these five statements of Peter, if we did the things that we're called to do in community, not separately, but together, if we vowed to hold ourselves in harmony and unity to these things and we showed sympathy, love, compassion, and humility, if the church went out and ministered to our culture the way Jesus ministered to every single one of us, it would have a ripple effect that would go through eternity. That's what we're called to do. Now let me conclude quickly, and those of you watching your clocks, these are really brief. The second point is, This is a difficult holiness we're called to. And Peter doesn't pretend. This will not be easy. Verse 9. He says, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. Notice that Peter knows what our fear is. Our fear is that if we truly put our neck on the line, someone will cut our head off. And Peter says, yeah, they're not going to take this well. They're going to come after you if you live this way. And so we say, wait a second. If I live well, I get attacked? Look what they did to Jesus. Look what we did to Jesus. So the challenge for us is, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing. Because of this, you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. I want to point out really quickly here that there are four, so far, Paul, or Peter has told us we're called to four things. Here they are. Chapter one, we're called to be holy. Chapter two, we're called to be priests of mercy. Chapter, th- or chapter 2, we're to be examples, and the fourth thing is found in chapter 3, we're to be blessings. This is why we're here. This is why the church exists. To be set apart, to be priests of mercy, to be an example to the world of what a blessed life by God, in God, with God looks like, and then to be a blessing. The New English Bible translates uh, chapter, or verse 9 this way, do not repay wrong with wrong or abuse with abuse. On the contrary, retaliate with blessing. See, I told you from the beginning, it's not just about me, it's about him. It's not just about us, it's about them. It's not just about what I will get, it's about what I already have received. If my feet are on the foundation of who Jesus Christ is and my hope is in his power to overcome any circumstance I face, whether it's at work or in my home or with my government or with my fellow Christians or with those who are persecuting against me, if if I can put my feet on Jesus and stand on the hope of the resurrection, even if they should take my life, can they take my life? Absolutely not. Because my hope is the God who raised Jesus Christ from the dead, who promises the same for me, can deliver me through any circumstance. So let's look at our third point, the rewarded holiness. What do we get if we take the risk of being the church and not just using the church? 
verses 10 through 12. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. Notice there's an expectation of a life set apart. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Peter is quoting a psalm. And in this psalm, there is a promise. But I ask the question, if I do this, what will I get? And then I finally see clearly what Peter's telling me. Mark, it's not what you will get. It's what you've already got. Go back to chapter one. Who are we? New birth into a new living hope because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What else do we need but to know the one who gave his life for us can raise us from this life to hope, to deliverance, to peace. It's the highest understanding of life is that he who will lose his life will truly find it. And it's the kind of life which is pleasing to God. Because the psalmist says that God listens and sees and responds to those who risk everything on the hope of the resurrection. And it also says here that the face of the Lord turns against those who choose evil. If God is for us, who can be against us? That's the question of the scriptures. And when God asks us to do a tough thing, church, he's not talking to us organizationally. He's calling us together to hold one another up. Some of us are hurting and need sympathy, love, and compassion. And some of us are are the ones to hold them up. But when we go out into this world, we're to love our culture the way Christ loved us. And that is to be willing to lose everything to gain everything. It's really the, the story of the cross. To accept what you would never choose. To have what you don't deserve. And so today, what we do is cry out to God to say, I want to be holy. I want to be a minister of grace. I want to be an example. I want to be a blessing. And the blessing that I am to the church and the world is based on my hope that Jesus Christ truly is enough. Because if he is, what could the world offer me that I would exchange for that? That's the Jesus we worship. That's the question before all of us. Is he worthy of our praise? Is he worthy of our lives? Will we be his church that stand together?